You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Amen, amen, amen. Good. Thank you, Kirkwood. I was at a dinner some years ago um, when at the end of dinner, and it was a dress-up dinner and everybody, it was at a, you know, in this elegant home and uh, at the end of the dinner, the host at the head of the table said, we're going to do a few things. And so he went around the table asking questions, you know, things like, what was the most embarrassing thing that happened to you in the first grade? And, uh, you know, you had to answer that. When he came to me, he asked the question, uh, of all the people in history that you could have a dinner with, who would you most like to sit down and have dinner with? Well, my dad was living at the time. If, if it were today, I'd love to sit down for just an hour with my dad. Um, at this point in time, Tuesday is June the 6th. Um, it's uh, D-Day. It's the 79th anniversary of, of uh, the landing at uh, Utah and Omaha Beach. And my dad went in on that, so I guess maybe that's why I'm thinking about that. But that night I said, I think, of all the people I could think, you know, people like, you know, Benjamin Franklin or George Washington or Winston Churchill or Johnny Depp, somebody, you know, that you could sit down and have dinner with, I said, I think more than anything else, I'd love to have a dinner with Jesus Christ. And then the question came, well, what would you ask him? What's the question that you would ask? And that's an interesting thought because there are, on a couple occasions, several different people, it seems to me, asked Jesus a question, and the question was, what is the greatest commandment? Um, in Matthew chapter 22, you find that, that question, and Jesus, of course, responds, and so you find it also in Mark chapter 12, and in Luke chapter 11, it seems to be a little different there. Uh, Mark, chapter, uh, uh, Mark chapter 10, it seems to be that there is one who stood and said, what, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus said, what does the law say? And he quotes it correctly. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've quoted correctly. You're exactly right. That is the greatest of the commandments. And then Jesus said to him, you're not very far from the kingdom. You're not very far from the kingdom. Well, in Matthew chapter 22 and in Mark chapter 12, uh, during the last week of Christ, during the Passion Week, it seems that a scribe, a lawyer stood and asked Jesus the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave back, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, Mark adds, with all your strength, and the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that comes out of the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5, and then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. So, and Jesus then comes and he says, let me tell you that the entirety of the law and the prophets hang on all of this. 
These are the two things that Jesus says, if you want to hang all of this on something, here is where it is. Here is what following God is all about. Loving the Lord your God with all that you are and loving one another as yourself. Jesus seems to follow up on that. And he seems to take this extremely seriously as he does all of uh, scripture. And he goes back, if you get to Matthew chapter five, and he says, you come to the altar and you've brought your gift. Uh, In other words, if you've come to the altar of God and you have your sacrifice that is there, and you remember that there's a brother who has ought against you, he's holding something against you, not that you're holding something against him, but he has something. He, you've done something to him that has him upset. Tie up, your alt, tie up your sacrifice there, go find him, let there be some kind of reconciliation, then come back and offer. And Jesus was saying, he's saying this, the whole of, all of this hangs on these two things, loving God and loving one another. Well, the whole of the covenant of God with Israel begins with these two concepts. So I want you to take your copy of God's word and go with me to Exodus chapter 20. Now, if you're new, if you're visiting, if you're here, we've been in Exodus uh, since September. <laughs> and we, are now, we will be there till Jesus comes back, I think. Uh, we, we are now into the middle of the 20th chapter. So I want you to look at this with me. And when you come to Exodus, and let me just remind you and, and uh, put this back in your mind, that over Exodus, you can write the words, not just exiting Egypt, but entering worship. The whole of Exodus to me seems to be getting the people of God into the presence of God where they can worship him. And so God comes and he's going to begin to give what is now called inside of Exodus, the book of the covenant. In fact, you can go to Exodus chapter 24. And in Exodus chapter 24, after God gives all of this, in verse Seven, it says, then he took the book of the covenant, that is Moses, and read it in the hearing of the people. So when you come to chapter 20, verse uh, 22 is where the pericope really begins. So from 22, chapter 20, verse 22, through 21, through 22, through 23, into chapter 24, verse uh, 7, that is the covenant that God is making with Israel. He's going to ask them, are you willing to do this? Are you going to be obedient to this? And they're going to respond to God, all these words that you've given to us, we will do. So you're beginning now this covenant that God has. And all of this, all of this is how God puts the nation together. Now, let me just say something here, because you're going to go through a lot of law in the next couple of chapters. And then the rest of Exodus is going to take you through a lot of law as well. There are three laws, just to help you. Now, I'm doing teaching right now. I'll go to preaching in a minute. Uh, But I want you to get this. I want you to understand uh, when you come to this law, because most people, when they start reading through Scripture, they either give up at the begots, you know, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and just think, oh, my word, what is all of this? Or if they push through that and they get to the law, they think, this law is too much. Let me explain to you that there are three aspects of law. God's not just giving them 
moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. You see moral law right there. You'll see some of that through the rest of the law. But he's also forming a nation. You've got to put together a nation. You're going to have to deal with monetary issues. You're going to have to deal with judicial issues, court issues. You're going to have to deal with property rights. You're going to have to deal with all these kind of things when you put a nation together. So you're going to have civil law given as well. That kind of weaves its way through all of this. And then you're going to come uh, back to what is called ceremonial law. You've got all the ceremony. You're going to see so much of this in Exodus and in Leviticus. So when you're reading through, it's kind of woven in together. Um, Israel is going to be the only theocracy the world has ever known. That is a nation led by God until they get to the place where they scream and cry and throw a fit for a king. And God says, okay, you, 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 if that's what you want, that's what you're going to have. And uh, I can hear my mother right now saying, beware lest you get what you desire and along with it, hellfire. So that's what they want and they get exactly a nation. Listen, a nation almost always gets what it asks for. Just sit there. That's all right. Amen. See also America 2023. Well... He's going to come and he's going to give them law. So you've got to keep all of this, but all of this is given in the context that God is the one to be worshipped, that we come into the presence of God, and you say, how are we to come into the presence of God? We come into his presence loving him and loving one another. Now, how did you get ready for worship this morning? Uh, did you prepare your heart? Did it start out with any prayer on your part? Did it start out with any reading of God's word? Was there any preparation of your heart to come into this place? We're going to end this service with the Lord's table. Have you prepared your heart to come before God and worship this morning? You, you always come into worship loving God and loving one another. How's your relationship with one another? Oh, Lord, that's a sermon, isn't it? How's your relationship? Well, we're going to kind of look at that. So let me just give you these two things as we go from chapter 20 into 21, and let me show you how you prepare yourself to come before the Lord. Listen to what God is saying us here. Your approach to God. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 22 of chapter 20, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make God's besides me. Now, he's already given that over here at the very beginning of the moral law, or what we would call the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land uh, of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth. Now, he's given that. He goes back and he picks that up, but then he adds to that Gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Now, if you remember two weeks ago when the graduates were up here and I was preaching out of Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah deals with that whole issue of how men would go into the woods, cut down a tree, take a portion of that tree, and they would overlay it with silver, overlay it with gold, and they would fall down in front of it and worship it. So he really essentially is saying, this is the foolishness of idolatry. 
And yet, let me tell you, all through Exodus, you're going to see this. In fact, all through the Pentateuch, through the five books, of, through the entire Old Testament, up until the Babylonian captivity, you're going to see Israel constantly going off into idolatry. And we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. They're going to continuously go off into idolatry. And so he comes back and he reminds them and he says, listen, you don't do this. It's amazing to me, however, that the pagans would take silver and gold, uh, fasten it all around a piece of wood, and then worship it. Now listen to what they took. They didn't take plastic and cheap cotton and put on it. They took silver and gold. Now, I could stop preaching. I'm just going to give you a point. If the pagans bring their best to a piece of wood, can you not bring your best to the living God? I'll leave it right there. That's a sermon. That's a good word right there. Just think about that. He comes to him and he says, this is how you're going to come before me. So he says, you're not going to come with any ornamentation, but you're going to come with an adoration for me. Listen, as he says, this is what you do. You shall make an altar of earth. The word there, earth, in the Hebrew is Adamah. What does that sound like? Adam. Adam is man in Hebrew. Adamah is earth. So you, you, you've got this, this is just earth. You can pile up some earth. You, you just pile up some earth and you'll sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and the peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. He just said, listen, you can be as poor as Job's turkey. You can just mound up a little bit of dirt. You, you don't have to have resources to do this and you can sacrifice your sacrifice there. And in Leviticus, for those that are too poor for a sheep or for an oxen, you can bring a bird he says, you just mound it up, you bring the best that you've got, and you come that way before me. Now just, and so he makes it to where anybody can do it. And by the way, let me tell you something. Uh, at this, God is doing this. He's making the ground at the altar level. All people, rich, poor, no matter what you have, you can come before him and worship him. He says, I don't want all of, this, all of this ornamentation. You don't have to have silver and gold. You don't have to have something that's elaborate. All I want is for you to come in adoration. You, you love me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He says that eight times in the book of Deuteronomy. Over and over, this is worship. You come before God loving God, not loving all the stuff, but loving him. And so then he gets beyond this ornamentation. He just wants your adoration. And number two, he says, not an imitation, but there must be a consecration of your life. Now watch. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. He says, I don't want your handiwork. I don't want you taking stone and cutting stone into some kind of really 
fine piece of artwork. You cut it, you get it into a square, you bevel the edges on it, you make some kind of design in it, and you put it together. Everybody's going to come to that altar, and they're going to be blown away with what your handiwork is, and not stop and think about me. It'll be all about what you've done, what you've brought to this, and the fact of the matter is God is saying, you didn't bring anything to your salvation. You didn't do anything for your redemption. You came to me because I saved you. So none of your work is to enter into all of this. There is to be a consecration now of your life. You come before God and you've consecrated yourself. That is, you've cleaned yourself up. You're there in purity. And listen, by the way, that ties in exactly with what um, Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that when we come to the Lord's table, we'd better be sure that we've spent some time in prayer before we take the elements of the Lord's table. You come to it in consecration. I've prayed up, I've repented, I'm coming before the Lord. So I come before God with seriousness. I come before God recognizing that he is holy. If there's anything that is in my life that is out of place, I put it before him in repentance. Now listen to what he says in verse 26, one of the oddest verses you'll come across. And he says, you'll not go up by steps to my altar. Now, by the way, let me tell you that when we get to the altar, you're going to discover that there are steps that will go up to the altar in the temple and that there's a ramp, steps or a ramp that go up to the altar in the temple, but God will have taken care of that in the clothing of the priests. That is, the priests were to wear, first of all, undergarments and then priestly garments. But now listen to what the Lord says here. And so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. And you say, that is odd. That is strange. Why, why in the world does the Lord tell them that? Because he intends for them, uh, for none of their nakedness to be exposed. And you say, well, why again? Why is he saying this? Because that's what all the nations around Israel were doing. And Israel has this penchant and is constantly going off into pagan idolatry. And pagan idolatry, let me tell you, is is replete with immoral filthiness. See also America 2023. With all this immoral filthiness. And so he says to him, listen, because the pagan religions around them, the Canaanite religion around them, oftentimes their priests would come to the altar. Now this is South Carolina. I can't help my South Carolina uh, language. They were naked. They would come naked. They would come unclothed. I'll translate that for you without any clothes on. And uh, often the people would because that was their worship. Uh, that is the perversion of paganism was that they believed. Do you remember? You get into numbers and you'll see this with Phineas. And they, they go off after the Midianites because the Midianite women come to the men of Israel and say, hey, come and eat dinner with us and uh, eat meat with us, and this, this meat has been offered to Baal Peor, and uh, part of the worship was all of these women were uh, sacred prostitutes of Baal, and uh, the worship involved all of this immorality. So the Lord comes to him and he says, stop copying the things of the world. 
Lord, I could make a point out of that for the church today. You don't come and worship. You come and there is a consecration of your life when you come before me. And then look at what God says. When you come and worship me this way, did you pick this up at the end of verse 24? He gives them two promises. He says, number one, I will come to you, or essentially, it goes back to where he says, what you're going to do is you're, you're going to worship me wherever, in all of these places where my name dwells, you're going to do that, um, and I am everywhere, you're, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. He says, I'm going to come to you. Here's his promise. My, my presence is everywhere. In that day and time, gods were localized. There was the God of Hoover and the God of Pelham and the God of Chelsea and the God of Birmingham. And that was the way they understood their gods. God says, I, I cause my name to be remembered in every place where I cause my name. Where is that? Throughout this entire universe. He created the entire thing. His name is over it all. He is over it all. So he says, you just remember, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, I am there and I will come to you. Now, what a promise. That all you need do is come before me and worship, loving me, loving your brothers and sisters, loving everybody else. You come to me. And he says, there is worship there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be there. And look at the second thing he says, I'm gonna bless you. I will bless you. Now, I want to tell you something. You've been doing church so much of your life, you never realize the blessings that come to you in the course of a week because you've gathered with God's people. Now, let me tell you, you can worship at work. You should. You can worship at a meal. You should. We begin our meals with prayer. No matter where we are, we always pause and pray. It's an act of worship to God. You can do that. This is the most unique worship you will experience in the course of a week. When you get, amen, when you gather with the people of God, you don't do this anywhere else. You don't do this down at the barbecue joint. You don't do this down at the mall. It's when we come together like this that we have the most unique experience of worship that cannot be substituted anywhere else. We've come together to worship the Lord. And he says, because of that, I will bless you. And most of us never realize through the course of a week the blessings that are ours because you've taken uh, to yourself to be here with the people of God. I honestly think one day when we wake up in glory, God's gonna show you the blessings in your life simply because you took the time to honor his word and to come to worship. Now, let me give you the second thing very quickly. And then we're gonna come to the Lord's table. And the second part of this, that's how we come before God. Now, our care now, secondly, is how we care for one another. That matters to God, how we care for one another. And so it begins in chapter 20. Now, this is gonna... this is an odd section of scripture to preach. And I've been looking at it for two weeks. And I'll never be able to give you all the things I'd like to, but I've got to give you a couple of things that I want you to see in this. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. 
if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. Now, let me just stop right there, and let me tell you that God over and over reminds these Hebrews of their slavery. He comes, you remember, back over here just as he's giving them the law. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He says, you remember, you were slaves. You were mistreated. You were beat. You had enough food just to get you by. Uh, Your time, your life, your words were not your own. You were not free in any way whatsoever. You were owned by the Egyptians and they treated you exactly like that, like you were expendable, like you were less than a person, and uh, they could do with you whatever they wanted to do. So he reminds them, he's constantly reminding them, I'm the one who brought you out of that. Now God's gonna turn around, and as he begins to talk about how they treat one another, he's going to go back to this concept It says here, if you buy a Hebrew slave. I want to tell you that through the years, I've heard people say, I think it's terrible that God's word doesn't have anything to say negative about slavery. Well, my Lord, have mercy. I'm fixing to show you how he turns it upside down on its head. He started out reminding them, you used to be like this. You never would ever think of treating somebody the way you used to be treated. And you say, but now preacher, you've got right there if he buy a Hebrew slave. Let me tell you that the Hebrew language is, every word in Hebrew has a number of meanings. One of the commentators, in fact, I, I called one of, he was a, I ordained him as a deacon. He is a professor at Criswell College. Uh, he was a professor of Old Testament uh, Hebrew and the Old Testament when I was chancellor there and at First Baptist Dallas. So I gave him a call this week and I said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to preach and I want you to tell me, am I off? And he said, no, you're exactly right. The word slave there One of the, several of the commentators will tell you that the Hebrew never had the word for slave or slavery. It did have the word for servant. That's this word. It is the word servant. So when you look at it, when you buy a Hebrew slave, no, when you come, and the word buy, by the way, doesn't mean just to purchase something. It also has the concept of redeeming. Now, let me tell you what this is. This is God's program for helping somebody get out of debt. God didn't give them chapter 11. God did give them an indentured ship. Now, let me tell you, it happens all through the Old Testament into the New Testament. It has happened throughout history, and it also happened up in the founding of this country that there were those, there were English, Irish, Scots, who indentured themselves to somebody because that person would purchase their ticket, bring them to America, and they would work for them for a period of time, whatever time was uh, governed. So when you come to chapter 21 here, we in the South have an understanding, I think a little better than a lot of people, about slavery, because it all happened here. I want you to understand that is not what you're experiencing here. 
And you say, well, now, how, you, you know, preacher, where, where does God say you don't do that? Look at verse 16 of chapter 21. Verse 16 of chapter 21, he who kidnaps a man. How did they catch slaves? Arabs did it. Africans did it. White people did it. They went to Africa. They would chase them down. They would kidnap them. Whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, he surely shall be put to death. That takes care of it right there. If you're caught with somebody that you're going to sell, we're just going to kill you. That would tend to make you not want to do that. And so there he is giving that. That's exactly what he's talking about. If you go out and you kidnap a man, capture a man, if you're going to sell him or if he's found in your possession, makes no difference, we're going to put you to death. So there you come to God has a clear word. This is not something his people are to do. Not just the Jew, but all of his people are not to do this. Now watch, as I just kind of walk you through some of this, go back to verse two. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. Now when did that ever happen in the American South? When you bought a slave, you bought him for his life. And then you not only owned him, you owned any children that he produced. So after six years, you had to let him go. Here's a Hebrew, he's gotten himself in debt. He can't pay his debt off. He goes to another Jew and he says, I am in so much debt, I can't find my way out. So what's gonna happen to me? Not a debtor's prison. God has his people care for one another. He says, you then have this person who can afford it. He will pay your debts off. You will serve him for the next six years. In the seventh year, you will be set free. In the seventh year, he is to go free, out as a free man. He goes out as a free man after those six years of serving you, whether this guy got all of his money back out of you or not. Now, that's not slavery. That's indentureship. You care for him. Part of the reason God did this was so that those who have been irresponsible with money goes into a home where somebody who is responsible with finances and through that six-year period, they can begin to pick up, this is how I am responsible with the things God has given to me. Y'all mighty quiet this morning. I'm sorry, it's just the next thing in X. When you preach through a book, you just got to deal with stuff you wouldn't normally deal with. Now, let me show you the second thing. He comes out without payment. Even though he may not, you may not have been uh, remunerated completely, he's to come out without any payment whatsoever. That is, he doesn't pay you anything for this. Now, let me, let me show you something over in uh, Leviticus. No, not in Leviticus. In Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. I want you to listen. Now, when he's set free, how does he go out? Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 13 says this, when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. I want you to understand God cares for everybody. You don't send him away empty-handed. Verse 14, you shall furnish him liberally with your flock from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. 
you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. In the six years this guy has served you, God has blessed you, you give him a portion of the blessing of God on your life. When did that ever happen in the American South? That never happened. Do you know what he's saying right here? You set the guy up. You set the guy up. You've taken six years now. You've pounded into his head how you handle resources, how you handle finances, how you run a company, how you run a business, and now you go out and you set this guy up in business. In a little house I didn't intend. This is not my notes. I grew up in a little small cotton mill town in South Carolina just at the foothills of the Blue Ridge. And in that little cotton mill town, every restaurant that was there as I grew up was owned by the Greeks. You didn't eat out in my little hometown unless you ate out at a Greek restaurant, the restaurants that they ran. And what they would do is this, they would start a restaurant and they would save their money until they could bring the rest of the family or other parts of the family over. That's the same concept here is that this Jew who got you out of debt and has worked you for six years and through that surely has trained you, now sets you up in your own business so you can turn around one day and help do this for somebody else. Do y'all see this? Y'all just breathe and let me know you're out there, okay? All right, I will. You, listen, he says, you do that just as God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Now, how did they come out of Egypt? God enriched them by moving on the hearts of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians gave them everything they had. Just get out of here. Take this gold, take this silk, take all of this material, take this. They were enriched. They came out with wealth. You go out now with this. That's how God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. If he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares so well with you, then you shall take an owl. Now, let me just come back to that. Isn't that interesting that that's in there? He says, that's what you do. You set him up. And then let me give you a third thing, and that's this, is that if he has a wife and children, they go out with him. You don't get to keep them. Now, that was one of the horrors of slavery in the South is that families were decimated because they split families up, children from parents, husbands from wives. God comes and he says, no, my people don't do that. You care for the entire family. If that man goes free, his wife, his children, they all go out. Now, I realize that in a few moments you're gonna see that he's going to say that if a slave married a slave, then there's something different. If the guy goes out, she's going to remain. If you look at that and you read this carefully and you follow this out, there is something going on here. God cares for the master who has put up the finances for this woman who was sold to him for some indebtedness or whatever, and she will be set free or if he goes out with how he is set up, he can earn enough to go back and purchase her to be with him. But it was to be sure that she would not go out with somebody who could not take care of her. 
It is always God's care for the people. God cared for how they were treated. He would come and say, listen, if you hit one of these, uh, 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 those that's in servitude to you and you knock out a tooth, you gotta let him go. If you punch him, you're mad at him and you punch him and you ruin his eye, you gotta let him go. You gotta keep him until he's healed up until he is fully recovered, and once he is fully recovered, you've got to let him go. God puts guardrails around that you just can't treat people any way you want to treat them. And so the expense comes back on you. You, you. you get out of line and you mistreat one of these people and they are hurt in some kind of way, you're going to have to pay the medical bills, and once the medical bills are taken care of, then you've got to let them go. Do you all see how God comes in all of this and he comes and he cares for them? And he even says, you're to care for him in such a way that, I'm in chapter 21 now, but you just saw that you get into it in Deuteronomy 15, but if the slave painly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. I want to stay here. You've so endeared yourself, you've so helped this man that this man says, I can't think of my life in any other, any other way other than being here with you and serving with you because you've been fair, you've been good, you've been gracious to me. You know what he says to do? Take him to church. Go to church. I'm not joking. He'll bring him to God. They'll go to church. They'll go to the temple. Then he'll bring him to the door or the doorpost. Now, why does he bring him to the door of the doorpost? Because that's the way you enter the family. You see, there's going to be a shift here now. He's going to become one of his own. He enters in at the door to become a part of the family. You're going to piss it. You wonder where piercing ears came from. Right here in Exodus, right here. You pierce the ear. Not anything else, just the ear. Pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. That becomes the mark. Why? The ear. Because the ear marks that I listen to the master of this house. You see that? That's what God was wanting Israel to do. This is a greater lesson for Israel. God is saying, this is what I've done for you. That's why you find Paul in the New Testament calling himself the bondservant of Christ is that I so love him as master, I've become his bondservant for the rest of my life. I am, and listen, the fact of the matter is though, we're not marked in the ear with a piercing. The word of God, Paul tells us this, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. There you go. There's the word right there. That's happened to us. And so, a man can so love his master just as we have that he commits himself to life. I've been reading a book for the last, about a week, on Lincoln. It's a new book that's out on Lincoln. I'm not even going to tell you the name because it's really not that good. Uh, the, some, of the, some of the research has been questionable, I've found out, and it's, uh, it has some interesting parts, but it has me thinking about all of this because it basically deals with what was religion like, what were they preaching in Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Anglican, Baptist churches at the time Lincoln became, through his life, 
and uh, what were they saying about slavery? So anyway, you, you're not interested in all of that, but I want to tell you a story. We don't know if it's true or not about Lincoln. Lincoln went down to New Orleans as a young man uh, about the time he was leaving home. He went down on a raft, and they were taking, I can't remember what they were taking, hay, cotton, I don't know. They were taking it down to New Orleans to sail. And Lincoln came across, for the first time in his life, he came across a slave auction. Uh, he had never seen a slave auction before, and they, there was a woman. He could look at her. He could tell that she, even though a young woman, he could tell she was worn out. She was tired. She had lived through a lot of abuse. He said you could see the anger in her face. You could see the hatred in her eyes. And they put her up on the auction block to auction her off. And Lincoln dug around in his pocket and he pulled out everything that he had that he had earned going down to New Orleans and he bought the woman. And he walked over to her once he purchased her and got the papers and he walked over to her and he was folding the papers up. He was going to give her the papers. He was, and she looked at him and she said, what are you going to do with me? And Lincoln said, I'm going to set you free. And she kind of laughed and she said, free? Free for what? Uh, he said, free to do whatever you want to do. Go wherever you want to go. She says, I'm free to go wherever I want to go. He says, you're free to go wherever you want to go. She said, am I free to say whatever I want to say? He said, you're free to say whatever you want to say. She said, am I free to do whatever I want to do? He says, you're free to do whatever you want to do. You're free. And then Lincoln said, well, so you're free. Where are you going to go? She says, I'm going with you. She said, I'm going with you because she had never had anybody treat her that way before. That's what's being said in the text. We've never had anybody treat us like Jesus. And here's, here's, the, here's the fascinating aspect of all of this. Is that when you get to Philippians where Kirkwood was reading... Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, and look at this, for us, took on the form of a slave. He who set us free from slavery to sin came and submitted himself as a slave to God for us all the way down to the cross where he was crucified. How in the world could we come together for anything else other than to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And to turn around and look at each other and love each other. Let's stand. You see, Scripture has that same theme all the way through. This love is not one way. That we come, that we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Do you know what God's word tells us? happened first it's that we love him because he 
first loved us. That's why he came. Because of his love. Can you imagine that kind of love? That kind of love that was willing to go to a cross to stretch himself out on a cross and to be willing to die for us. That while we were yet sinners, still in our sin, still in our rebellion, Christ did what? He died for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and your trust into him. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to slip out from wherever you are. Come here to the front. Take my hand. Share with me that this morning you want to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Others of you need to come and say, we need to come and put our life in the life of this church. This church believes the word of God. This church preaches the love of Jesus Christ. It preaches repentance. It preaches the unmerited grace of Almighty God through Jesus Christ. You say, I want to bring my family and be a part. Maybe others of you just need to get to an altar that God's speaking to your heart about something. You just want to take it to him in prayer. Father, I pray that in these moments, just before we begin to take the elements, Lord, that represent your body and your blood, all of us saying, this is Christ who lives in us. Father, I pray for those who need to come and make that decision for you. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come right now as God speaks? Just slip out from wherever you are. You come. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.